Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Again. And welcome everyone to the Sosi Salon. Make matriarchy. I can't speak. Make matriarchy great again. Something like that. Uh, this is Sean Newcomb, and I am here with John Sam Alden. And, and we have our third band members here sitting in with us. <laughs> Vicky Noble. Today. <laughs> it's Vicky Noble, eh, Vicky? Hey, nice to be here. All right, let's give it a little applause. Absolutely. So what are we going to chew it up about today, Vicki? What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about Maria Gimbutas, my heroine. All right. Nice. nice. She deserves that, too. She does. She does. She was pretty darn amazing. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, tell us about her. Tell us, uh, give us an intro or overview about Maria, and then we'll just start talking about her. Okay, well, uh, this is her centennial year, so this is it's a really great time to be oh, wow. sort of resurrecting her uh, reputation. Um, Maria was one of the great minds of the 20th century. <clears throat> she was born in 1921, and uh, she was born to two doctors. Her parents were doctors in Vilnius, the capital, the intellectual center of Lithuania. It's often called the Paris of Eastern Europe. Nice, um, nice. People don't uh, don't always know about uh, how really uh, intellectually interesting some of the Eastern European countries are, and and the scholars and. Uh, researchers from those countries have a really in-depth kind of approach to what they're doing. And Maria came out of that setting. She emigrated to the U.S. in 1949. There's a story behind that, you know, because she, the Russians invaded Lithuania uh, and she had to leave. She had to flee. And she went to, I think she went to Austria and then Germany. And she got her PhD dissertation done and got her PhD during that period. So she had, she told me once when she fled to the United States, she had a baby under one arm and her dissertation under the other. Oh, wow. Her other baby. Her other baby, really. Yes. <laughs> and she worked for a while, uh, like really a long while, a decade or more at Harvard University she was given an office there, not really a salary, and she wasn't allowed to use the libraries for men only. Oh, for crying out loud. I know. Isn't that amazing? That's <laughs> kind of the times, huh? The 50s. What year was yeah. this? A library for men only? Oh, yes. On the Harvard campus. Are you kidding? All the, all the schools, all the Ivy League schools, that would have been true. Oh, I know. I, as, a, as a proud son of one of those schools, yeah, I know they didn't have ladies there till the 1970 at my my alma mater but uh yeah. and maybe they have a sister 
college, you know, like Radcliffe, right, is, right. Is Harvard. So the Radcliffe Library would be open to women, but the Harvard Library, no. I I just I find that I I knew that schools maybe didn't weren't co-ed at that point, quote unquote. But I just didn't realize they wouldn't allow women in the library. There's something really symbolic, and especially a professor who was teaching. You know, right? Yes, for crying out loud, she needs access to those resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it was just it was. I think maybe you could actually go. I'm not sure of this, but I believe maybe you could go if you went with a Harvard man. Ah, if you were accompanied escort. by a man, yeah, yeah right, sure. Right. But I believe I remember that. I I, I should really check before I well, say. It. You know, all of that knowledge could hurt the lady brains. Yeah, so. sure. <laughs> could make her infertile <laughs> or something horrifying like that. Yes. <laughs> Nevertheless, Maria Gimbutas was made a Peabody Fellow right in the middle of her period of time at Harvard in 1955. Uh, which is, you know, an astonishing award. In uh, in 1963, she left her husband and moved with her daughters to Southern California, and she started her work at UCLA, where she taught uh, almost up until her death. Not, I think she was retired professor emeritus the last few years of her life. Um, and she taught European archaeology, and eventually she developed a whole interdisciplinary department called archaeomythology, which is what we remember her for. Right. Archaeomythology, you know, there's an archaeomythology institute that Joan Marler runs. Joan was uh, Maria's right-hand woman by the time I met her, and, um, and she was editing she edited the language of the goddess she was she was doing everything and that's how i got to know maria and got to spend time with her was that joan and i would go down and visit her in her topanga house when was that vicky uh well i met maria in 1988 at a conference in san francisco at ciis and she had a recurrence of the lymphoma that she had uh, she had gone into remission earlier in her life. Mm. Um, and I invited her to come to my school in Berkeley because I had a whole bunch of women coming every week doing classes, and we were developing our healing abilities. And I told her that we would do a healing for her, so she came. She was always very open to all that kind of thing. Nice. She came over to Berkeley and we made a circle and <clears throat> we, we chanted and put our hands on her. And, uh, you know, it was just beautiful. In fact, when, when we were done, she sat up and I just so wish I could translate her beautiful uh, Lithuanian accent. She said, now I can die because now I have met the goddess. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> and so, you know, she she was already uh, very important to me when I met her because uh, we had her first book, The Gods and Goddesses of Old Europe, which then was uh, <clears throat> revised title, Goddesses and Gods of Old Europe. The second right. was printed because that was more appropriate given the uh, statistical difference between the amount of female uh, iconography and male iconography, which was almost none. Um, so <clears throat> so um, 
So anyway, I was thrilled to meet her. It was a very important time in my life. And, and uh, we did three different healing rituals for her over the next few years when I had my, I had my school from 1987 to 1991. And so during that period, she came a couple more times. We even filmed one of those uh, events. Oh, wow. But her genius was her, her ability to synthesize. You know, yeah. she, she had so many different areas of in-depth knowledge. And it allowed her to see what, what the specialists in Western mainstream archaeology were not able to do then and have not been willing to do since. Uh, you know, I talked recently in one of our podcasts about the war against the goddess, uh, the relentless war that has been perpetrated against Gimbutas and her work for decades. She, uh, she said to me at one point that she thought it would take at least 30 years for her work to be integrated into the mainstream. And it's been uh, about, well, she died in 94, so it's almost 30 years. And now, of course, uh, the work that she did is, I wouldn't say it's being honored yet, but it's being confirmed. It has been confirmed by recent DNA evidence that is non-debatable. Can we yeah. talk a little bit about that? Because I mentioned to you, I've listened to a few podcasts on archaeogenetics, the study of ancient DNA, and Maria Gambutas has come up and more than once uh, with with uh, both archaeologists and geneticists, but mainly with archaeologists. And the sense that I got is kind of like what you're saying, where they are acknowledging her, uh, but kind of dismissing parts. And so what I want to ask you is, I'll give you an example of what one of them said. One of them said that Maria Gambutas was, yeah, she had some things right, you know, but she put an overemphasis on large migration. She put an overemphasis on these movements of people, uh, but she got a few things right. So maybe for the listeners, can you kind of give her what, what it was that was so um, revolutionary or, or, uh, that groundbreaking about what she was studying about this older culture of the Indo-Europeans and the previous matriarchal women. What was that about? And then what is it that they're finding now that confirms a lot of it? Well, she spent, uh, you know, first of all, we should say that she uh, had already, she had already lived uh, a completely productive and uh, renowned life as an archaeologist of the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age is when there were weapons, and okay. that happens around 3500 BCE and goes until about 1200 BCE. And then after that, we have the Iron Age, <clears throat> just for people to keep a historical chronology. Um, so she was she was already internationally known for her her books from on that work from that period. When she moved to California and uh, began to do her own digs in Greece and Macedonia, uh, she you know she began to find and document the earlier strata, what we call the Neolithic period, the period of agriculture. And 
not just agriculture, but what agriculture brings about, which is settled communities that last over many years or many decades, and in, in some cases, uh, even thousands of years. Um, so she documented all of that, uh, that archaeology from what she named Old Europe, which is mainly the cultures that grew up along the Danube River. So uh, it involves a lot of uh, a lot of Eastern Europe, a little bit of Central Europe, um, and I'll get into that a little bit more later. But basically, she put she put the goddess civilization on the map because what she saw in the different levels, the earlier and then the Bronze Age, she saw a very extreme difference in lifestyle and values. And she documented what she was seeing and she interpreted what she was seeing in the artwork and female figurines and uh, the incredible, really beautiful pottery and, and the weaving and the, you know, all the different ways that people were expressing themselves. And, and of course, this was because, you know, this, this interpretation was, of course, based on the body of work that she had been lauded for before this time. Absolutely. Her, yeah, all of her work on, on, um, on uh, the 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 later age and all of the artifacts of the later age and and um, you know you had we've talked about this before you mentioned like the patterns in the weaving and the pottery and the all of this sort of thing that had this this um, coherence of of yes. symbols word. to it yeah and uh, and you know she her this uh, archaeomythology. Uh, is a sort of bridging uh, interdisciplinary form. She brought in uh, she brought in archaeology. She was a hard scientist, but also uh, folklore and mythology and symbolic studies. And she and she knew twenty five. She could read twenty five languages. Amazing! Can you imagine that's incredible. Uh, I, I I spent the lockdown and and even now trying just studying different languages, and just going through a few of them. One is enough, but going through more than one is hard enough. Thinking of someone doing twenty, knowing twenty five, yeah, if she could read primary sources. You know, certainly I don't know about Britain. Maybe Cambridge is different, but uh, it probably is. But in America, we know that people are not <laughs> are not uh, you know versed in a lot of different languages right people right in yeah. america only know one language english period but uh before i move on to that, i just wanted to underscore a point that dawn was saying and just ask you about it is again it seems like so when she was studying the bronze age men of war uh she was being lauded i think this was what dawn was alluding to and then as she as she begins to move into this discipline looking at this earlier time which you, as you'll start talking about, will be much more female centric. That's when she became more suspect in academic eyes. Am I putting it right? Well, yeah, it's not an accident. You know, she her work provided an incredible grounding and a foundation, uh, a scientific foundation for feminist research. She wouldn't. 
I don't know if in those days she would have called herself a feminist. I mean, most people didn't in the 1960s, and that's when she was starting this work. But the work itself provides a feminist lens. And so it was so exciting to young feminist scholars when we discovered her. And the reason we discovered her is that Harper San Francisco at that time was run by uh, a man called Clayton Carlson, and uh, and he and the managing editor was John Loudon, and both of them were very interested and intrigued by avant-garde or cutting-edge new kinds of uh, approaches from authors. So they would come and get us. You know, that's how Motherpiece happened for me. Uh, we made the motherpiece cards ourselves, me and Karen Vogel. In uh, they came out in 1981, and within a month or two, I heard from John Loudon at uh, Harper, San Francisco, that someone in his office had seen a poster saying that I was working on a book to go with the cards, and did I want them to publish it? Could you just uh, tell the listeners a little bit about what Motherpiece is, just so they have that? Most will know, but just so they can. Sure, sure. The Motherpiece cards, the Motherpiece tarot cards, uh, are a kind of breakthrough deck uh, of tarot that Karen Vogel and I did in the late 1970s. We were researching for what we thought would be a big, important book. And instead, as all the streams came together, and in this very unexpected or unanticipated way, um, after someone brought a tarot deck, a friend brought a tarot deck to me, and I had never seen tarot before, um, I got excited. Karen got excited. We started playing with cards all the time. And before long, we were making our own deck. I've told this story in a lot of places, so I won't go into the whole thing now, but it was very exciting. We spent a year. Uh, drawing the images and creating a tarot deck that didn't break from the structure of the tarot because we felt it was ancient and had really a lot of depth and we didn't want to, you know, kind of go off from that. But we did break the form uh, in many ways. We made the deck round instead of rectangular um, we made uh, we made the images. Uh, they're very they're very fresh and kind of liberated from the old uh, the old fashioned uh, old school tarot, which was like white guys in court costumes on horseback, you know, and that kind of thing. Well, um, I'm holding, I'm holding the deck in my hand as you tell us. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. Well, we, we uh, I mean, more than half of the images are women of color. We decided to make a deck that would uh, redress the problem of exclusion of the female and the feminine from the tarot decks. And, uh, and so we did that. It was a year of intense research and dreaming and Paint, uh, not painting, but drawing the images, and then later Karen painted them. Um, it was wonderful. It was the most fun I've ever had. And uh, and by the end, we had put all of our research. We had we had been going to the Berkeley Library. We used to be able to go. I don't know. Young people won't even know you can do this, but we used to get into the stacks. We used to be able to go from 
you know, maybe you'd look up one book in a card catalog. And then when you got back into the stacks, into the shelves of books, you would find, you know, 10 other books right, right, that were yeah. useful uh, in that subject matter. And we went to the Berkeley Library often because that's where we lived. And we went over to the Stanford Art Library a lot. Oh. And we, and we were investigating the ancient goddess and the artwork and the artifacts and what the, what the mythologers said about it and what, uh, you know, it was just, it was such an exciting time. And absolutely, <laughs> that was the 70s. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, you know, pretty, pretty soon we got the, well, we, we actually had an agent for a while and the a feminist agent on the West Coast, and she kind of agented everybody's books and projects. And uh, I, I have to write that down. A feminist agent, Dawn. I think we have <laughs> our new TV show. <laughs> that would be good. I love it. I love feminist agent <laughs> <laughs> who actually eventually uh, got tapped by uh, the guru Muktananda, touched her the back of her neck, you know, and gave her. a kundalini experience and she left everything and went to india oh wow <laughs> but anyway this was before that and she she was very interested she was a friend and and she was very interested to take our project to new york so she did and there were three different uh, major publishing houses in new york that that showed a certain amount of interest one of them was macmillan and they wrote to me and said this was for the book you know, well, no, it was it was both. I had sent some chapters, so they said, "Well, we we like the deck very much, um, and we 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 like your writing, but what are you talking about?" <laughs> because I was writing in the form of the old tarot decks and tarot ah, books, you know, right, right. And in this very abstruse language, and uh, so so that was funny. That was our first one, and then. Um, Gosh, I can't remember who else was in between. But then Doubleday said they would publish the book if we would go with U.S. Games to do the cards. We said, great. And then uh, U.S. Games at that time, this was about 1979, said, um, well, they would have to have artistic control. So we brought the project home nice. to Berkeley and mortgaged our house and got them printed. And after they came out is when I was asked to do the book. And and two years later, Stuart Kaplan, wonderful person who ran US Games forever, only just recently this year died. Um, he he then came back to us and said, okay, let's let's figure out how to do this without us having to have artistic control. Nice. <laughs> so they've been printing the cards ever since. Nice. And distributing them, you know, around the world. I think yeah. it's way more than 300,000 decks out there now. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. So anyway, uh, why did we go there? Because, uh, well, I We're just talking about your, your relationship when you met Maria uh, around that time and what you had been working on. Yeah, it was, well, so her books were coming out. Oh, I know. I, I started all that because the way that her books came into print, the, the goddess books, was also because of John Loudon at uh, Harper, San Francisco. Nice. And, um, and so their, their support of feminist work and their uh, 
how they felt that we had integrity in what we were doing and so on. That was very helpful to all of us. There were many uh, authors who, who benefited from that uh, leadership in that time period. It was wonderful. And, um, and Maria's book, The Language of the Goddess, came out as a beautiful Harper coffee table art book. In about 89, I think. You said 89? I think it was 89. I'd have to look it up to be sure, but I believe that's right. And and she had already done the goddesses and gods of old Europe. But the language of the goddess was on a whole new level. It's where she really broke down the symbolism and and worked with semiotics in a way that uh, she was very gifted at. And and that's what everybody, that's what the mainstream is, is upset with her about. You know, they feel like she uh, took license, you know, and, and made interpretations. But, you know, she, she was great at that. She was reading the old script, and the script was written on the bodies of these female figurines. And there were 100,000, more than 100,000 female figurines dug up from the sites in old Europe. So, uh, it's it's terribly important. And nowadays, you know, I talked about this at length in the War Against the Goddess podcast, that the they're now actually so postmodern in the way that the younger archaeologists are coming to all of this. And they they actually say that they don't know if those figures are female. That's just a that's just an assumption that actually they could be uh neutral, they could be uh, they could be sexless. Uh, just because they have breasts doesn't mean they're female, and that we're we're hung up on gender, you know. Oh gosh, I mean yeah, that's, so that's a whole crazy. other. I mean that's a, probably for a whole other discussion. But what would Kambutas, in terms of finding what you had mentioned the disparity? Let's just stick with that. These are female figurines. What was the disparity you said in terms of goddess figurines versus god figurines? Like what was the? Oh, uh, about a hundred thousand to. Uh, gosh, a hundred. I mean, it was like so close enough, close enough. <laughs> you know, I, I I have thought for a long time, and especially reading all this postmodern stuff in the last decade, I I just feel like most likely it all came about as a result of the intimidation felt by lesser scholars in relation to her prodigious talents. You know, she she was able to draw from so many different genres and disciplines that and 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 knowing how to read in primary resources, primary sources uh, in the language of the authors gave her incredible uh, edge, an incomparable edge over her peers. Especially yes. in America, yeah. And, yeah, and her incredible self-confidence. She was indomitable. She, she, she just. She said that she had such a good upbringing that she just felt sure of herself. Nice, <laughs> like nice. Oh, to all the women in America, <laughs> right? That be nice. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. And she yeah. was really, on account of all that, you know, uh, and just the person she was, she was able to stand her ground when they accused her of being intuitive and unscientific and goddess forbid feminist. Oh, 
Oh no. <laughs> oh, no. When did the shift when did the shift begin in her career? Like in her life and career? Was it in the late sixties, were you saying? When did the shift to the goddess central centric work? When well, did it occur and what happened? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think her digs were in the sixties, but I, I I'm not absolutely sure about that. Her first book came out in the seventies. I mean her first book on the goddess. She had done many books before that. She did twenty books in her life. But um uh, the work she did that's really probably her most important contribution overall in terms of mainstream archaeology, at least so far, has been her what she called her Kurgan theory. Mm. Kurgan is the name of the type of burial with the burial mound and usually just one person buried in the center, one guy. Right. Um, um, or at least one guy honored. Uh, sometimes they killed women and children and slaves and put them in there too. But uh, the the Kurgans, as she called them, are are what we now call the Indo-Europeans, uh, and uh, and sometimes even it, they boil it down to certain cultures, Yamnaya culture, for instance. That's the late one. Um, anyway, <clears throat> she. Um, she she in the 50s she started to make this theory and it was from her archaeological research that she was working and she saw that there had been invasions and she she really showed like the the civilization of the goddess her 1991 book uh, is excellent in this way. It's a big, big book. You have to be very dedicated to read the whole thing. It, it chronicles all the different invasions that she saw over time. She called them waves of invaders, uh, Indo-European invaders. And, and she showed how first they came in as, you know, bands, small bands, sort of like war bands, maybe, or, uh, or scouts, raiders. That's what uh, that's what David Anthony calls nomads, raiders and traders. Um, but they came in and and pretty much wrecked things wherever they went, and they left behind these kurgans. And but then at, finally, uh, they came in a huge wave in around uh, three thousand BCE, and that's the that's what shows in the DNA record. That's what you were asking about, uh, uh, about the genetics. And so the, the DNA record shows that there was, it, it shows two really important, huge migrations of people over time into Europe. The first wave was around uh, 7,000 BCE, and it was a, a whole population from Turkey, basically, what we call Anatolia, the, the, old, <clears throat> the old area of Turkey and Syria and so on. And they were farmers already. They had, they had first established uh, farming. And they, they moved with their animals, apparently on boats, through Cyprus and to Crete and into Greece. In, in the seventh millennium, the beginning of the seventh, I guess the 
end of the seventh millennium. Uh, anyway, um, they they brought all of their they brought everything. It wasn't just cultural; it was people. So that was the first population uh, migration that shows in the DNA very clearly, and it was men, women, and children, and animals and plants. And they established agriculture in Greece and the islands, and then. Uh, Within a thousand years, they had moved north and and uh, settled along the Danube, uh, and and from there they moved even further uh, east and further north and west into, up around the edge of the Black Sea. Yes, and yeah. into Bulgaria and Romania and all of uh, gosh Yugoslavia, what we used to call Yugoslavia, you know, right. And so that whole area has different cultures. They have different names, but they're all part of of this early Neolithic wave of people who came into Europe and established farming and and had great art and had uh, very a lot of ritual activity and um, and peace on earth. Hello, <laughs> right? We're so obsessed, right? In the and no weapons, no yeah. weapons, yeah. No weapons, exactly, and no fortifications, and no apparent class stratification. You know, they were egalitarian. They were female centered. They were in harmony with nature. When people start moaning about agriculture being the problem, that 10,000 years ago when agriculture happened, you know, it became private property. That's just not true. That never happened until the patriarchal invasions. For a long, long time, thousands of years, agriculture was done productively uh, and sustainably and in relation to nature in a ritualized, uh, sacred way. And so that's the... that's And the collectively... Story. Collectively, and, and everything yeah. is collectively owned right. and uh, collectively distributed. Uh, it's really the gift economy, you know. It's, it's, the, it's the Marxist idea of from those who have to those who need. It's, it's, there are so many different ways to... to they'll, they'll be coming for you, Vicki. Careful. <laughs> that is probably part of the problem, actually, with Maria. That's probably part of what happened is that a lot of the Eastern European archaeologists uh, who really appreciated her work uh, and do their own work uh, in, in, the, in those areas, they, um, you know, they saw what she was talking about. But of course, it was a lot of it is often spoken in terms that you could recognize as Marxist. Right. Um, and right. so that's kind of old, you know, that's not really what's happening anymore. But, uh, but still, it, it's, it remains in as part of the problem in America and Britain. Right, right. There was still the, the, the memory of, you know, Marxist scares and, and the the McCarthy hearings and. And and collective means collectivist, you know, and, and it doesn't, I mean, we, we see that they were very egalitarian and very evolved in their artistic expression and their, their ability to uh, handle conflict. I mean, all humans have conflict, but they did not have weapons and they did not have war. And, and like so many matriarchal cultures that exist 
today in pockets around the world, they were able to do conflict resolution as a collective practice. And it, and it was part of how they lived their lives. It was part of their value system. And I think we as Americans um, just cannot um, hold the idea in our heads at this, that, that, you can, that you can have co- collective culture and society and work as, a, as an egalitarian group, but not at the, at the same time suppress individual expression. Uh-huh, right. 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 You're not trying to say everyone must, you know, walk in lockstep and think the same. And, you know, this is not fascism. It's right. getting along. It's much more fluid and uh, yeah. probably much more fluid and harmonious than any of us have experienced in our Western patriarchal cultures. Right. That's a, re- right. That's a really good point. And it may be, too, that so much of this collectivist stuff that developed, particularly in the 19th century, is developed through the prism of a patriarchal, clannish, tribal mindset. So it's taking collective you know, ways of interaction like you're talking about, Vicki, and it's taking them and seeing them through this very patriarchal standpoint. So it comes out into this very oppressive, conformative structure. Well, I, why, I would, them, why for them, why it's hard for them to understand what Gimbutas was talking about. Yeah, I would disagree with that, Sean. The ones I've read, uh, the some of the Central uh, Asian, some of the the sorry the anthrop the archaeologists who specialized in Central Asian archaeology, which we didn't know about until the uh, until the the wall came down, you know, so we we weren't privy to that archaeology for 50 years, but it was happening. And I, I love some of those scholars. They're, they're really talking about the same thing. They, they didn't. Oh, oh, I, think you, I think you misunderstood. I wasn't saying the scholars. I'm saying that in, the, in America, we think of collectivism through the uh, eyes of Marx, as yeah. opposed to through the eyes of. Through the eyes of Ayn Rand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. That's, what we, that's kind of what happens. So yeah, exactly. Not the scholars, I mean how we interpret it. Yeah, it was, it was demonized. And, you know, you know, it was so interesting when the wall came down, the archaeology and anthropology from a huge swath of Eurasia, all of Central Asia, all the way to China, uh, became open and started to be translated into English. And we beca- it became available to scholars in this country and scholars reading in English. Um, so w- it was fascinating because we didn't know anything. You know, when I went on the trip I've talked about before to uh, Russia to, um, with Janine Davis Kimball, the, the archeologist, the American archeologist who right. was digging up Amazon. <laughs> I met Janine and I thought she was wonderful. It was one of the best experiences I had to meet yes. and have her talk at a festival that I had. So that's yeah. why I wanted to give a shout out. She was so absolutely inspiring. Absolutely. So. She was inspired and inspiring <clears throat> and very dedicated. And she took a couple of us on this trip up the Volga River in, in uh, 1997 to look at these graves that the that they were calling Amazons. And it, it's a much later period, uh, like 500 BCE. 
So uh, it doesn't have anything to do really with this, uh, you know, 5,000 years earlier, but, uh, but still it, it was very interesting. And, and the archaeologists were wonderful. They were so open and so smart and so good to talk with, you know. And we, we went to all the museums along the Volga and looked at the, uh, the remnants of these cultures. And nice. some of the things that I looked at were really old. Like there, was, there were these little horse goddesses, as I called them, um, that were done from, that were sculpted from a horse bone, a f- the foot bone of a horse, from five from the fifth millennium BC. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so when I saw those, they had little breasts and little belts. You know? Nice. And, and that's what we think of when we think of Amazon. So I, right. I thought, oh my gosh, I think women probably domesticated horses, you know, before yeah. men got on riding the horses into war. I mean, that was a whole different thing that happened. Isn't that what that was the Greek theory that the Amazon? One of the legends is that the Amazons were credited with domesticating horses. So, well, I believe it. Yeah, yeah. I think I was looking right at it. So, uh, anyway, she she did this Kurgan theory that was uh, it was really studied and and you know in Indo-European studies basically, not so much uh, archaeology, a little of both. Um, and she named the waves that came in and especially this last one that was so big that that's what I started to say. The, right, the, two, right. uh, the two recognizable, uh, DNA moments in the, in the DNA record. The second one, the first, the agriculturalists moving into Europe. And then the second one was this 3000 BCE period when, a massive wave of Indo-European males came into Europe, into old Europe, along the Danube, came down around the Black Sea, and then finally along the Danube. And and really, at that point, colonized and, uh, you know, settled in Europe. And when they did that, they wiped out the male farmer DNA. So the old Anatolian European male farmer DNA was gone. There's no more of it after that date. And so those of us who have come from European descent, we, we have that, that mix. We have the old European female DNA in us, and we have the Indo-European invaders DNA in us. We, right. We've talked about this, Vicki, where uh, one of the things that I've probably mentioned before, it feels like in the, literally, we talk about it, like you just said, in the DNA of Europe, but in the cultural DNA, the psychological DNA of Europe, you've got this clash. Yeah. Um, the patriarchal warrior invaders and this matriarchal pre-existing. And so that's why you get this. It's it, We often, it's described as women getting liberated and doing X, Y, and Z, when in fact, it's just an earlier behavior, an earlier cultural structure of matriarchalism that is just there. It's not that it's ever been gone. Right. It's, I always try to remind people, it's women as a group governing culture. It's not like Hillary Clinton or Margaret Thatcher. It's women as a group. And when women as a group are in the center 
of a culture in the governing body of the culture, then uh, the statistics show that there's more peace and more egalitarianism and more uh, of what we would call the maternal gift economy, mm. giving to need. You know, the idea that, for instance, the, the original idea about the maternal gift economy from Genevieve Vaughan is that the, the, the human infant is born helpless and unable to survive without a nurturer. Someone has to nurture and nourish that infant or the infant can't survive. So, And that that so, is a gift freely given without yeah. expectation of... Because Return. you can't have it, you know. Because you can't, can't. right. The, yeah. The infant yeah. cannot give back. And so that's the foundational idea in the gift economy is that the, the, the mother is the model. Um, right. And, uh, and so that's very powerful. And that's how we need to think about these old European cultures that lasted so long without conflict and without killing right. each other and without killing anybody else. And and they uh, they lived in harmony with nature. You know, they didn't the the clear cutting and all of that stuff that happened later happened after patriarchy. Right. And right. so it's so important to get the facts straight because otherwise we can make very glib assumptions like, oh yeah, agriculture, the first fences. You know, oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's yeah. not how it happened. You know, that's not how it happened. So you have yeah. to really think about how it would be to have a group of, you know, you try not, it's like, it's not your mother. It's, uh, it's you know, it's the group of mothers uh, thinking from a mother's perspective. This child is hungry. It needs to be fed. Right. You know, it's dirty. It needs to be changed. It's sleepy. It needs to rest. And, and, and all the children. Yeah. I was listening to a, um, I was listening to a, a lecture given by a, a woman from Burkina Faso, and she was talking about how um, all of the children are are our children. Right. Yes. Like there is not my child and your child there. There are our children. And, and you know, that, sometimes anthropologists take that kind of thing to be a superstition. They'll say, oh, yeah, they don't even know which children are there, you know. But it's not like that. You know, right. they understand perfectly well biology. They understand perfectly well who the mother is, obviously. And they understand even uh, pretty often who the father is, but they don't care. They don't institutionalize it. Right. So it's not right. patriarchy. Because right. the father's not involved in any kind of ownership. And in, and in terms of what you're saying, Don, the mother isn't either. You know, you have many mothers. The group of mothers will assuredly take care of all the children, right. no matter what happens. Right. And so that's the, that's the matriarchal principle. And uh, it's so repellent to people in, in Western culture because they've been... You know, on the one hand, they've been educated to believe that matriarchy is just going to be the flip side of patriarchy. Right. It's going to be women oppressing men. But that's not true. And and it's like a... It never a, has been true. Never has been true. There's never right. been a culture where women dominated men in that way that we think about how... That, we, we that men fear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
And uh, I'm just sorry, Sean. I'm just going to inject, you know, an idea that we've talked about before, but um, I think is, you know, is also uh, part of this conversation that the idea that this wave of um, that this wave of migration of the Indo-Europeans, the final big wave that uh, Maria Gambutis talks about, um, is not. It's an occupation. It's an invasion and an occupation. Yeah. Right? Like they wiped out all of the male DNA. They killed all the men from this from this society that has a completely different culture than they do. Yeah. And, and then with the women. And then exactly. And they and they occupied the land that had before been where this peaceful matriarchal culture had lived. And, and what go ahead. Yeah, and and that this is, uh, uh, you know, I was talking with my friend Danielle the other night and talking about how, you know, the 5,000 years of patriarchy, even though this invasion happened and the culture perforce changed because, you know, it was this aggressive patriarchal um, males who were now calling the shots on penalty of violence, that this strain of the matriarchy and the understanding of women as as sacred and equal has never been able to be eradicated even the most the most strict the most violent patriarchal cultures the women still have an understanding of themselves as as the nurturers, as the life givers, and as equal to the men. That's that's the clash that you know we we're saying earlier. Of uh, you've got those strands in the DNA, but then in the DNA of cultures still yes. there. What I'm curious though for Vicky too is that just in terms of Maria. So we have this these waves, right? That that we now see genetically. We know that from the DNA recent DNA analysis, we can see the replacement. Maria saw this archaeologically, right? She saw exactly. this earlier. So can you talk a little bit about that and what's confirmed about it? And but, and also maybe if you can speak to it, what is it that some of these archaeologists or geneticists are still refusing to give her credit for? I'm not quite sure what, what they're saying is not. Do you know what they're saying is still not quite proven? Because it sounds like what she hypothesized and what she saw in the... Uh, in the uh, archaeology of those regions has been proven in the genetics of what we saw. Well, yes, and look at how long it took. I mean, she wrote her Kurgan theory in the 50s and early 60s. That's when it was published. And and uh, so how long is that, 50 years? I mean, it, because it's only yeah. since 2015 that we have this remarkable DNA uh, these studies that show what I'm talking about uh, that right. actually confirm the invasions. And for, for, for that whole 50 years, or much of it, the archaeological uh, community was, uh, it was totally unified around the idea that there were no invasions, that that's just a fantasy that's like a feminist fantasy of the bad guys coming in and ruining everything and and on and on and on like that and all different levels of, of scholarly language. 
Um, and now, suddenly, they, there's nothing they can do about it. You know, their own science has shown definitively that that's what happened. So Colin Renfrew, who was once a student of Maria's and a friend, um, became her enemy during her later lifetime and <clears throat> went against her in all kinds of ways, uh, academically and you know, in public and so on, as so many of the archeologists have done. But he came out right after this DNA material came out around 2015. He came out uh, in the next year or so, I think, with, he did a video I think it was a, an event of some kind where he was public speaking. And he, uh, he said she was right. He had to admit that uh, he was wrong and she was right. And it was a really big deal. When that wow, happened. that must have hurt. Well, yeah. And, yeah. And well, although credit, credit to him, because I still hear yeah. some scholars, you know, it's interesting, like Dawn, like you and I laugh about the stuff I've read and, and you've seen as well, where they say, well, yeah, they it, it looks like an invasion, but it may just be that they preferred these guys because they're so good looking. Yeah, uh, right. Well, yeah. that wasn't yeah. that wasn't those weren't really mainstream archaeologists. Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. It's still it's still it's hilarious though. But there there yeah. are some mainstream ones who do say, well, yeah, but still, even with yeah, yes. the DNA's there, but yeah. do we really make? Well, they just things? they use words like uh, you know she was imaginative and. Uh, intuitive and you know yes she was all those things but boy she had a big brain she was one of the smartest people I've ever met and I believe one of the really great minds of the 20th century and what, so, what and that intuitive understanding of things was yeah, like, is, let's talk Einstein yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Like Einstein perfect yeah is, so, is what allowed okay. her yeah, that intuitive understanding is what allowed her to make those leaps yeah. of logic and understanding that we are only just catching up to 50 years later. Yeah, because the intuition, the way the right brain works is is kind of associative. You know, it puts things together, it synthesizes. It's not right. linear. It's, right. it's more like it could come out of a dream and it could come out of something you saw in a museum that day and then the you know, and it all comes together. And it, it, intuition is, by definition, nonlinear. You right. know something you don't. You can't really explain the the linear process that got you there because it actually wasn't linear. It was an epiphany, right? A um, eureka moment, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you know, uh, one thing I'd like to do, just because I know we'll run out of time before I get through all this material in front of me. Um, I'd like to be sure that people know about two events coming up. I mean, the one event, the Aswim Conference, the symposium on Maria Gimbutas and her centennial uh, is actually happening. Um, the Let me look at my calendar. It's this week. It's the 16th, 17th, and 18th. And it's a virtual symposium, so anyone can sign up from anywhere and be part of it. Um, and it's very exciting. So many scholars and activists and just really good thinkers and uh, people who have been influenced by Maria Gimbutas are, 
presenting papers and on panels and so on. I'll be we may have, to, we have to clip you out to this out so we can put it up because by the time this comes up, people may miss it. So Dawn, maybe we'll figure a way to cut it out and promote that so people will know. Sounds That'd be good. great because one of the things they're doing, ASWIM uh, is uh, an acronym for the association for uh, uh, the Association for the Study of Women and Mythology. And they do uh, really bang up conferences every two years, usually in person, but now of course not because of the COVID problem. Um, so uh, the, this symposium, you can go to their website. Let me give you that. Oh, do I have it? Uh, a oh, gosh. I think it's just, uh, I think if you just write the association for the study of women in mythology, uh, it'll get you there. Okay, so great. You can, you can get in that way. And I, I, I want people to know about it because if you register and pay, then all the, all the panels and events are recorded and they're going to be up on the website at ASWIM for a year. So it's not necessary to be able to be there this week because I know it's way too short notice. Yeah, but it is possible to to uh, to see and hear everything that goes on if you if you register and hopefully that you, maybe that can even be done after the fact. I don't know. The other important thing, oh, and I just want to say I'm moderating a panel on Saturday of a lot of old friends of Maria. One of them is Mary Mackey. I've just read oh, wow. the novels she wrote nice. that she wrote in she researched. Uh, old Europe through Maria, and Maria helped her on the first two novels, I think. Um, and I've just blown through all of them again because uh, there's I hadn't read them for decades, and they're just wonderful. And they're very accurate, you know, in terms of all the research she did. So she's going to be talking about her relationship with Maria. Nice. It's a gratitude panel to Maria. Donna Reed and Starhawk are on the panel. They did the did the brilliant film on Maria Gimbutas called Signs Out of Time. Um, and uh, I think uh, Star Goody. Uh, there's a lot of really good people. I don't have it in front of me. I'm sorry. I'm failing, but please. Oh, no way. <laughs> no, <laughs> no worries. No worries. Know what our next Saturday might look like. So. The, other thing, yeah. the other thing that uh, – seems really important and is happening this year is and i was gonna maybe we'll do this on a second podcast if we don't get to it today i wanted to read some things from the opus archives and research center in santa barbara it's the part of the pacifica um, institute or university and um, that's where all of maria's archives are and also lots of other interesting people joseph campbell uh, I'm oh, trying to think of another. What's, uh, what's the name of the institute again? Sorry, Pacifica? The, the name of it, well, it's at Pacifica Graduate Institute, but it's called the Opus Archives and Research Center. And it's uh, it's just exactly that, www.opusarchives.org. And they nice. have made just a beautiful slideshow presentation that you can access for free by going on that site. Oh, wonderful. Archaeology of a Goddess. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. 
And so I, I have some notes from that, and I did want to share some pieces from it, but it's not, it's, you can go there yourself and see what they've done. It's lovely. And they're also having, they're doing a free webinar August 17th um, about Maria and her work. So there's, there's really a lot happening uh, to celebrate her. And I'm Great. so glad about that because, uh, you know, we're just, uh, the, the war against the goddess, uh, we, we're, they're not going to win. <laughs> no. No. no, they are not. They're gonna, they're gonna keep fighting, but yeah. Like it's a good long one. Well, let's do this, Vicky, because I do want to. Well, of course, we will. I want to have you come back all the time, but we'll let's we, let's come back to Maria with more detail. Another like on another podcast. Well, let's, let's do. Let's we, do a yeah. follow up to the conference, if you oh, wouldn't absolutely. mind. Oh, great idea! You want to do yeah. Oh, okay, perfect. Wonderful. Perfect, perfect, I'd love perfect. to do that. That's really a great idea. That yeah, is, that tell is us great what, you, what you experienced and, and all that sort of thing and, yes. and uh, share yeah. the experience with and us. And all the be... luminaries who are sharing their thoughts and their work, right. their research and, you know, and art. Yeah. There's a lot of art. They've done a juried art exhibition for this conference. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. And, and many other things. They're even having networking sessions. I'm gonna ha I'm gonna host a networking session also on Saturday, uh, on the Matriarchal Studies Day that I organize along with some other women. We've been doing it uh, since uh, 2012, and we've been we did it with uh, Lydia Rule, who is now uh, has passed on. But we in in her honor, we continue to. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, great. But right. Yeah, because so much, so much comes out of those jam sessions where you know people who are not normally in each other's you know presences or orbits can get together and start um, you know generating ideas and tossing things around. Yeah, so, that's exactly yeah. what it's about. At the yeah. conferences, normally, you know, we would at lunch we would we would take a day and have networking sessions and we would go to a table with other people who are interested in the subject and and network together um so now it's happening on zoom or something <laughs> some sort of video conferencing yeah. software yes yeah a little intimidating they're having they're wonderful they're giving tech meetings for us for those Good. who don't have a clue uh, so that we can we can figure out how, how to do these things, you know, how to moderate and how to how to give papers and all that. Yeah, well, we all eventually figured out the internet, so I'm sure we can all eventually figure out video conferencing as well. Yeah, it's pretty sci-fi, but okay, <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> well, let's. Let's do this. Let's just maybe do um, uh, our one more thing, Vicky, of what you'd like to leave a listener with, because we are definitely going to explore this more. We have a lot more of the War Against the Goddess that we have to explore, too. And then we'll do the follow-up next week. But what would be your, if this rings, there you go, finally, <laughs> one more thing you would want to leave the listeners with about Maria Gambutas? Well, I guess uh, another thing that I believe is her very important legacy that is uh, under uh, underrated um, is that she very early on at the same time she was working out her Kurgan theory she actually pinpointed the Indo-European homeland <clears throat> and 
This is a subject, it's sort of obscure to most of us, but for a hundred years, the, the Indo-Europeanists and the archaeologists have been, uh, you know, really debating, uh, madly debating the, where the homeland of the Indo-Europeans was. I think Colin Renfrew thought it might be Europe. Uh, some of them thought it was in the Caucasus. Some of them thought it was north of the Black, I mean, you know, but she pinpointed it. And, and another woman uh, that I love as a researcher, her name is, um, oh, I just blanked. Uh, give me a minute. Can you edit this out, I hope? Well, I'll just jump in and say one of the reasons that this is important is because for at least the end of the 19th through the early 20th century, this homeland became a football for nationalists and supremacists of all sorts in terms of where these Indo-Europeans came from, including the Nazis. So it was this kind of like notion of the powerful, once again, we always talk about Dawn, wheeled wagon warrior Men right. coming through. Well, where are they from? Are they're from here? You know, or they're uh, from there? Yes, uh-huh. the Aryans. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, it, the name I'm looking for is Elizabeth Whalen Barber. She's the world textile expert. Nice. When the, when the mummies were found in China, um, and archaeologists, Western archaeologists, were allowed in to start studying them. Um, the uh, she was one of the experts called in because the the mummies, as I hope people know by now, were Caucasian, and they came from around the Black Sea, and they ended up in uh, basically in in Tibet or in China, what we now call China, um, and 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 this was in the late Bronze Age that they show up there. So they clearly they migrated for a very very long distance. And they're buried in a place in the desert and the oasis uh, camps um, where the salt and the sand preserved their skin and their hair, you know, preserved all the organic materials. So what they were wearing, their woven, their very finely woven clothes that that were very similar to, if not exactly like uh, tartan plaids from Scotland. Oh, um, wow. It's just an amazing uh, topic in itself. We could do a whole podcast sometime. But anyway, Elizabeth uh, Barber was called in to look at the weaving and uh, figure things out. And, and she, uh, she nailed it on the Indo-European homeland uh, because these were Indo-European mummies. Um, they, they were... Uh, she she did it through the weaving tools, the looms, the loom weights, the types of tools that go with the weaving, and it, the the particular wool twill that the mummies were wearing, she could track to the place where they originated, which was was uh, in this case, I think, uh, in the Caucasus next to the Black Sea. Fascinating. And, uh, Fascinating. And they went, she showed very clearly that they went out in two directions, east and west. And right. the mummies in China are the ones that went east. And the Cretans and other, uh, especially I remember Crete, Troy, Troy, Crete, a lot of the places I talked about in the Double Goddess book are sites where the weaving uh, was transmitted. Um, 
to the West. Now, so, Vicky, were these, uh, when you say that they're the Indo-European, so they are related to ancestors of, of the wheel, the, what we talked about, the wheeled wagon invaders, or are they the offspring of the mixture of the wheeled wagon invaders and the earlier Anatolians? Or wh- who are they tied to? I think they were, I don't think they were invaders. Um, but I mean, are they related to that same? I don't in- know. Oh, okay. I, no, they haven't. Uh, I don't, I don't know that they've, I, I, I could, I should ask Victor Meyer. I'll try to figure this out. So, uh, yeah, it's true. I'm just curious. Okay. You know who you might want to talk to? I've said this before. Miriam Robbins Dexter. She's a, oh, perfect. Yeah, she's an Indo-Europeanist and a a, a very good expert on this subject. Well, nice. we'll ask you off here how to yeah. reach them because it's because yeah. I don't. I didn't even think they were Indo-European because they seem very peaceful and artistic and all that. And so, I like to think they were a matriarchal tribe, and I still think that. But they have Indo-European genetics, so. There okay. were lots of different kinds of Indo-Europeans. Remember the ones that, uh, the 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 ones in, along the Volga. Who I don't know if they were Indo-European, but anyway, they were in that area. It's a great right. it's a great area to subject to pursue, particularly for what we look at in terms of matriarchies. And a okay. lot of people are now. You know, David Anthony has been looking into who domesticated horses, and he found this whole other culture that are not Indo-European and were not part of that. Uh, that that invasion mentality, you know. So there's a whole lot of different things going on. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, John, do you have anything you'd like to leave us with? Any one? Yeah, more? absolutely. I uh, my one more thing is a quote by Ingmar Bergman, speaking of intuition, and uh, he says, "I make all my decisions on intuition. I throw a spear into the darkness. That is intuition." <laughs> Then I must send an army into the darkness to find the spear. That is intellect. Oh, I love it. You yeah. know, that's exactly, yeah, wonderful. So that's- intuition makes that connection it, with lightning speed. And then it takes intellect to sort of plod along and get there finally to where the spear was thrown. You know, this is how I describe my research on the Double Goddess book. It started from a kind of a vision that happened during a ritual uh, on a lunar eclipse at a Tibetan center. And it was the kind of thing where I suddenly understood that there was some connection between White Tara in the east, in Tibet, and the, the Cretan snake goddess in the west. And nice. I, it was such a long shot, you know, I felt like, oh, this is wild. You know, I, I just saw it. I, I know it's true, but how could it be? And nice. then I began to do the research that led to, by the time I finished the book, I had found, I had discovered that the one of the women, who the Dakinis or, or Yoginis, historically important in Tibet, uh, might be related, actually related, to the snake priestesses in Crete. Wow. And I was able to do that through, it was like putting the lines between the dots, you know, yes. it took eight years to do that. There you go. That's there how you go. I ended the book, and I, I even checked in with some uh, scholars in the universities uh, to make sure that what I was saying was plausible. Right, right. And they said yes. 
There you go. So yep. that intuition that is so, you know, uh, scorned and looked down upon in Maria Gambutis's work, yeah. uh, you know, is celebrated when it happens to other people, other luminaries, other particularly male luminaries. Yeah. I so, wonder why that is. Don't. <laughs> why <laughs> could that possibly be? It's a mystery. <laughs> well, Thank you both, as always. Vicki, we love chatting. It's just yes, I love it, too. You guys pull it out of me. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And let's definitely um, make a plan off air for uh, talking to you when you come back from the conference. And, okay, that sounds and, great. Yeah, we'd love to hear about it. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the 34 Cersei Salon. Make matriarchy great again. We've been talking with Vicki Noble about Maria Gambutas. Thank you for listening, Don Sam Alden. Thank you for being here. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank Take you, care. Sean. Thanks, Don. Thank you. Take care, everyone. And blessed be. Blessed be. <laughs>